Uh, something we like to do at Fellowship Nashville is to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. So if you are able, uh, please stand with me uh, as, as we go through. We're, we're going to start up at verse 22. If, if you've got a Bible, great. If you're not, also great. You can just read on the boards. Um, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Thank you, John. You know, if you don't make it as a drummer, there's always stand-up comedy. <laughs> Welcome to Fellowship Nashville, everyone. It's good to see all of your smiling faces here. Well, I can't see your smiles. Your smiling eyes here. Um, also good to have those of you who are joining us online. Um, my name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be back up here teaching today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Some of you know my background, uh, but for those of you who don't, I was raised by my mom. Mom was a pastor's kid. My dad was a missionary kid, and and so. Neither of them were in vocational ministry, but they were very, very faithful in church attendance. And so probably a week after I was born, I was in the doors of a church. And every time the doors opened, my mom and my dad were very faithful in making sure my sister and I walked through those doors or pushed in a stroller through those doors, whatever it was. We were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And so I had the message of the Bible communicated to me from a very young age. And by age five, I had come to an understanding that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. I still remember where I was when I first prayed the prayer to ask Jesus to forgive me and to save me. Um, my mom um, explained the gospel to me. I was in my bedroom at the time. Um, I was scared by a sermon I heard <laughs> and um, didn't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So she was explaining, the, 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 um, explaining salvation. And um, I, I don't know why I did this, but I got up from my bedroom and I went into the adjacent room. My, my, door, my room had a door that opened to the kitchen. So I went into the kitchen by myself, knelt down right in front of our avocado green refrigerator on some ugly red carpet. Why we had carpet in the kitchen? I have no idea. Maybe those things were cool in the 70s. I don't know. But I vividly remember kneeling on ugly red carpet in front of an avocado green refrigerator and asking Jesus to save me from my sins. 
I finished the prayer and I felt this weight lift off of me. Well, there's something else I also recall as my childhood went on. I recall having a lot of doubt, a lot of doubt. You know, the, the faith tradition that I grew up in um, emphasized human responsibility a little bit more than it did divine sovereignty when it came to salvation. And so, you know, I, I always wondered, had, had I said the right thing when I prayed? Was I really saved? Did I really mean it? <laughs> did God hear me? Was I repentant enough in that prayer? And so one of the things I did as a kid, I, I played a lot of basketball in my driveway by myself. I always won. Um, but um, <laughs> alongside my driveway, in between the, the driveway and the house, was a, a flower bed. And right in the middle of that flower bed, there was this big landscaping rock. And I would oftentimes pause from winning my basketball game. And I would wander over to that rock. I would plop down, set my basketball beside me, and I would pray again. God, I really mean it this time. I'm so sorry for my sin. Would you, would you please forgive me and, and be my savior? I did that over and over and over again. You know, my, the church I grew up in taught the doctrine of eternal security, but, you know, I, I just, I had these doubts. I had these doubts. Perhaps you can relate. How many of you can relate with, with that? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, others of you, your doubts may come from a totally different place. You might doubt, you know, is God even real? Is God even real? And if he is real, could, could he really love me right where I'm at, right how I am? Whatever your doubts that you're carrying into the room with you this morning, I believe our passage of Scripture from John chapter 10 is going to be a big encouragement to you. I really do. But before we dive into our text, let's talk to the author, shall we? God, thank you for your word, and that's what it is. Lord, encourage our hearts, encourage our doubting hearts with your word this morning. We come asking that your spirit would teach us. I ask that you would speak through me in spite of myself and my inadequacies, and that your word would be made very clear today to all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so our outline is going to be pretty simple this morning. As we know, John is painting a, a beautiful portrait of Jesus with his words as we wind our way through the narrative. And... Um, we're simply going to observe two details from this intricate, beautiful portrait this morning. So if you're taking notes, simply write on the top of your page, two details for doubters. Okay, say that out loud with me. Two details for doubters. That's our outline. That's all you have to remember. And we'll be observing two profound truths about Jesus, truths that will bring encouragement to doubting hearts like yours and like mine. You know, previously in our narrative, Jesus was at a feast. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles, where he declared, I am the light of the world, if you remember. But apparently, um, here in the middle of chapter 10, we've jumped ahead about, oh, three months. And we are now back in Jerusalem at a different feast. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so we read here that it's winter time. That's the rainy season in 
um, Jerusalem and Israel, which explains probably why Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon. This, this is a double-column, double-tiered kind of portico porch on the south side of the temple. Here, here's a picture. If you go to Jerusalem, it's sometimes called Solomon's porch. If you go to Jerusalem, this is actually a uh, 150th scale model of the city of Jerusalem and what it looked like in uh, the first century. So this is at the Jerusalem Museum. Go visit it. It's pretty incredible. Um, if, once you visit the Promised Land of Israel, you'll never read your Bible the same way again. It just it jumps off the page and comes to life. But this, this is a replica. It shows where Solomon's porch was. And John tells us that Jesus is back here in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. Now, you might take your, your Bible and scour your Old Testament looking for this feast, and guess what? You won't find it. Why not? Well, because it wasn't instituted until 165 BC, which is well after the entire Old Testament was written. Um, now, when we say Feast of Dedication, that might not ring any bells in your brains, but it is a well-known feast. You might know it by its contemporary name. It's wintertime, recall, and Jewish people celebrate a feast in wintertime still to this day. Any ideas of what they call it? Hanukkah. That's right. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah today. So Hanukkah is an eight-day feast celebrating the Maccabean Revolt which led to the reconsecration and rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated by a, a guy, the blasphemous Syrian king called Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a mouthful of a name, but um, for the sake of time, I'm going to give you the short version of the story, okay? In 168 BC, this Syrian king, Antiochus IV, um, he called himself Epiphanes. <laughs> um, that was his self-made title. You know what Epiphanes means? God manifest, a humble guy, really humble guy. Um, actually, no, very, very proud. Um, he calls himself Epiphanes, God manifest. He, he enters into Jerusalem with his armies. He, sacrifice, he massacres a bunch of Jews, broke into the temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, no Jewish person could imagine a more offensive, sacrilegious, and blasphemous act. This Antiochus guy, a mere mortal, is calling himself God uh, manifest, and that's blasphemy. And he just desecrated the temple, the most holy place for the Jewish people. And so these second century BC Israelites were obviously outraged by this. You can imagine their anger, their outrage. And so led by a priest named Mattathias, with his five sons, a large-scale rebellion breaks out against Antiochus Epiphanes. And now when Mattathias died in 166 BC, his son Judah, known as Judah Maccabee, um, Maccabee actually means the hammer, okay, um, which is also my disc golf nickname for, for Gus Andalina, <laughs> Gus the hammer Andalina. Um, anyway, Judas Maccabee, Judas the Hammer Maccabee, Mattathias' son, takes the helm of this revolt, and within two years, he drives out the Assyrians, or the Syrians, not Assyrians, the Syrians, reclaimed the temple, cleansed it, consecrated it, rebuilt the altar to the Lord, and relit the menorah in the temple. Now, a Jewish tradition tells us that they only had 
one day's supply of oil for that menorah. But it lasted, guess how many days? Miraculously lasted eight days, which is why um, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah for how many days? Eight days. Commemorating the reconsecration of the temple during the Maccabean revolt against the blasphemous Antiochus Epiphanes. So why am I telling you all this? Well, first of all, it's the feast at which Jesus is at with his disciples. But secondly, I want you to see the beauty of our narrative. I want you to see the the beauty of the picture that John is painting with his words and his themes. What are the themes of the Feast of Dedication? You could sum it up with two words. They're going to be on the screen. Say these out loud with me. Blasphemy and consecration. The Feast of Dedication is about the confrontation of blasphemy and the consecration of the temple. Now, do you have any guesses as to which two themes John is going to weave into his narrative here as he's talking about Jesus, the Feast of Dedication? Any guesses? Blasphemy and consecration. He's going to talk about the confrontation of blasphemy. That's going to be a theme, and also the consecration of the temple. I absolutely love this. John is like a ninja literary artist. He really is. Now, now let's look at verse 24 where Jesus gets cornered in the temple court. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Speak plainly, Jesus. Are you the Christ or aren't you? Are you the Messiah or aren't you? Are you the promised anointed one that's prophesied about in the scroll of the prophets or aren't you? Tell us plainly, Jesus. No more of these confusing analogies. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. No, 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 just just cut to the chase. Are you the Messiah or aren't you? Would you just speak plainly? Would you just say yes or no? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, I told you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Notice here that there's two things that are highlighted that substantiate Jesus' identity, his words and his works. He said, I told you, his words, and you do not believe. And the works that I'm doing in my Father's name, you, you don't believe them either. You don't believe my words or my works. And here's why, because you are not among my sheep. Now, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, he kind of ended his time there talking about the good shepherd and sheep. And now he's back in Jerusalem. He's revisiting that very theme, picking it back up again, and pressing the analogy a little bit further here in our text today. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Here's the reason you don't believe, guys. You're not among my sheep. If you were, you would hear my voice and you would follow me. I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember, I'm the good shepherd. I don't lose a single one of my sheep. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. No thief, no demon, no angel, no ruler, no power, not even Satan himself. Nothing in all creation will separate them from me. I will hold them fast. They are secure. I won't let them go. I will keep my own. For how long? Eternity. Eternity. 
They don't need to go over to the landscaping rock beside their driveway and pray over and over and over again for Jesus to save them. No, they're mine, Jesus says, and I will hold them fast. I'll never let them go. My friends, right here is the first detail for doubters that I'd like for us to highlight in our text today. Believers in Jesus are graciously preserved. Say that out loud with me. Believers in Jesus are graciously preserved. Once you've heard the voice of the good shepherd, once you've transferred your trust over to him from anything else you might be trusting in for your standing before God, your moral resume, your your comparative righteousness to those around you who you deem as less righteous than yourself, you know, your church, and whatever it might be that you're placing your trust in, you say, you know, that, that doesn't matter, but I need you, Jesus. I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior. Jesus, I believe in you as the one God, the one that God sent to rescue me from my sin. Once you do that, once you believe in Jesus, you will never be let go. You'll never be let go. You are a son, daughter of God. You're a child of God. And Jesus holds you fast. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what, my friends? Eternal, eternal life. You're eternally secure, graciously preserved in the strong and loving hand of Jesus. You know, sure, you, you will mess up, you'll sin, <laughs> you'll still stumble, but sin after you've crossed that faith line does not affect your standing with God. Yes, it can affect your fellowship with God, but you don't cease to become a child of God when you sin. Now, First John tells us if, if you confess our sins, you're, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do it, means he always will. He's just in doing it because Jesus already paid the price. You are held firmly in the hand of the good shepherd. Jesus goes on to expand on this truth in verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, remember, the Jews had just asked for clarity here, <laughs> the Jewish crowd. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. But Jesus gives them much more than they bargained for here. He didn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. What does he say? I and the Father are one. This is going to blow some circuits, okay? Now, there's some liberal scholars out there that will claim that Jesus never made claims to deity. He was just a good moral teacher, but he never claimed to be God. Well, I'm going to go with how the original audience heard Jesus rather than some guy with an anti-supernatural bias in some ivory tower in a university 2,000 years later in a totally different culture, okay? How did their original audience understand Jesus? They understood, they understood him? <laughs> they understood him perfectly. They knew what he was saying. He had just claimed to be one with God the Father. This is on par with Antiochus calling himself Epiphanes, okay? God manifest. This is blasphemous in their minds. So what do they do in verse 31? What any self-respecting Jewish person would do in this instance, they reach for some stones. Now, this is a tense scene in, in the, the feast dedication. What does verse 31 say? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
And just as the Maccabees rose up to confront the blasphemy of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews in the temple are preparing themselves to confront what they perceive as blasphemy here. They have stones in their hands. They're about to throw them. But look at how Jesus responds. He asks them a question, and he stalls for time. He's about to get killed, but he's brilliant. <laughs> he knows his time is not yet, so he stalls for time. Look at verse, 30, or verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's not for your words, Jesus. It's for your, I'm sorry, it's not for your works, Jesus. It's for your words that we're stoning you, because you're claiming to be God. They had just asked for a clear statement about whether or not Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus gives them even more than they asked for here. A crystal, clear claim to deity. I'm divine. I and the Father are one. Any questions? Can I make it any more clear than this? And then what Jesus does next is absolutely brilliant. Verse 34, let's read this together. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Time out. <laughs> now, this is a little bit difficult to understand, okay? But once we do understand it, it's actually comical. It's actually pretty funny what Jesus is doing here. Um, remember, who, who's surrounding Jesus? Talk back to me. Okay, a Jewish crowd. What do they have in their hands? What are they going to do with these stones? They're going to throw them at Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? I think now is a great time for a Bible study. If, if you would open your scrolls to Psalm 82, I'd like to read something for you. And in Psalm 82, there's a quote, and it quotes God saying this, I said you are God's. And Jesus' logic here is this. If the Lord God in Psalm 82 can address beings other than himself as God's, small g, lowercase god's, most likely in that context, it meant angels or, or earthly kings. If God can address beings other than himself as gods, and this detail is in the unbreakable inspired scriptures, why are you upset with me for saying I am the son of God? Are you so sure that you want to be stoning me when God himself in the scriptures that you hold so tightly refers to beings other than himself as small g gods? Now, now what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing? Is he claiming now that he's not divine? No, he's stalling for time. <laughs> he's he's de-escalating the situation. He's using an obscure phrase from Psalm 82 to plant a seed of doubt in the minds of his would-be assassins and causing them to question whether, they not, whether or not they have everything figured out, causing them to question whether they had heard him correctly. Now, they had, but... He's now basically trying to confuse them just a little bit so they don't throw their rocks. Look at verse 36 again. I just want to spend some time on one other thing before we move on. Verse 36 says this, Do you say of him whom the Father, what's the word? Consecrated, remember that theme, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. What were the two themes of the Feast of Dedication? Confrontation of blasphemy and consecration of the temple. 
What does this angry Jewish crowd think they are doing right now? They think they are taking up the mantle of Judas Maccabee, the hammer, confronting the blasphemer, consecrating the temple by stoning Jesus, and restoring true worship to God himself. But here's the irony. It's actually this Jewish crowd who's blaspheming here misdirecting worship away from God in the flesh. And what are they about to do? They're about to throw rocks. And what are they going to do with those? They're going to desecrate the true temple of God by stoning Jesus. And remember, we've got to weave together the narrative here. Go, go back to what we studied in John chapter 2, where Jesus is in the temple and he says, destroy this temple in three days, and in three days I will raise it back up. Is he referring to the, the stones around him of the literal temple? No, what's he referring to? himself, the true and better temple, <laughs> where all the fullness, the fullness of deity now dwells. Jesus is the new residence of God on earth embodied before them. And here Jesus says at the Feast of Dedication that the Father has consecrated him and sent him into the world. This is not an irrelevant statement in verse 36. The Father has consecrated Jesus, the new temple, so that the world might now worship the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. Isn't it incredible how John is weaving these themes together? It's absolutely magnificent. Magnificent, whatever that word is. I'm sorry, I just geek out over this stuff. It's amazing. Anyway, Jesus is now successfully stalled for time, Okay. He's planted a seed of doubt into the minds of his would-be assassins. And now let's look at what he does with the time he's bought for himself. And this is so amazing. This is so amazing. He graciously extends one last invitation to these people that are about to kill him. Let's look at it. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then, then don't believe me. But if I do, if I do them, even though you don't, do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus basically says here, look, it would be one thing if I was making all this up. I was making these claims about myself and I had, had no way to back it up. But look at the works that I'm doing, things that only Father God could do. I'm wielding the same exact power. The, the sick are healed, the lame are walking, the eyes of a man born blind are seeing, guys. If you don't believe my words, will you please believe the works? He's addressing this to people holding rocks. This is incredible. He's looking his assassins in the eye and says, won't you believe? Won't you believe? Won't you please believe? This is amazingly gracious and brings us to our second detail for doubters in our text today. And that's this. Doubters of Jesus are graciously pursued. Doubters of Jesus are graciously pursued pursued. Not only are believers in Jesus graciously preserved, but doubters of Jesus are graciously pursued. These people have murderous intentions in their hearts. They're ready to kill Jesus, and yet Jesus is still graciously pursuing them. He says, hey, look, you with your stones, 
Listen to me. I, I know what I'm saying. It's hard to believe. You got your whole life believing that God is solitary, isolated, monopersonal. And, and what I'm revealing to you here is that there's more to God than you ever understood. I get it. I get it. This is hard to comprehend. It's a lot to take in. But if you can't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the works that you might know and understand. That in, in the Greek, it's the same, same Greek word, gnosko. Gnosko and gnosko, okay? Gnosko, past tense, and gnosko, present tense. That you may know and know. It means that you may know and really know and keep on knowing. That the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Would you just start with, with what you can see? Start where you are. Will you just trust whatever little bit you can believe here so that you can know and know? What a gracious invitation to would-be murderers. Jesus patiently pursues hostile hearts. Doubters in Jesus are graciously pursued. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Because not one of us believes as we ought to believe when it comes down, right down to it. Not you, not me, not anyone. None of us believe as we ought. How patient is our Jesus with doubting hearts? I find great comfort in that. We can all pray with that guy that we read about in Mark chapter 9 where he says, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus graciously understands that it's hard for these people to believe in him here because what he's revealing to them runs counter to their monopersonal conception of God. They believe in God the Father. They just have no category for God the Son. And what Jesus is doing here is with his identity statements in this passage, I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. <laughs> What he's doing here is patiently beginning to introduce them to the theological reality that we now call the Trinity, okay? The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. What on earth does this mean? Jesus is claiming equality with God, God the Father, but he's not claiming equivalence, and that distinction is very, very important. So, so stick with me here, but we're going to shift gears from sermon to systematic theology class for two minutes, okay? You think you can handle that for two minutes? Okay, um, no falling asleep during this part. This is important. Jesus claims equality with God, but not equivalence. Yeah, hold her hand, that'll keep her awake. Um, if, if Jesus were to claim that he was father, I'm sorry, I just lost everybody. If, <laughs> if Jesus were to claim that he was the father, that they were equivalent, that you could just swap them out, that they were the same person, it didn't matter which one you had, that would be heresy. But it's not what Jesus says here, because the Son is not the Father, just as the Father is not the Son, nor is the Father the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Spirit the Son, nor is the Son the Spirit. The whole of Scripture reveals that the one true God exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and these three are one God. This is the doctrine that we call the Trinity. 
It is exactly what Jesus is nuancing here to explain what he means when he says, I and the Father are one. We are both God. We are both divine. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And I'll introduce you to the Spirit later, but that's too much for you guys with stones in your hands to comprehend right now. (laughs) But we are three persons, one in essence. We are equal. We are united. We are one. And yet we are three. And so deep and loving is the union between us, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we mutually indwell each other while maintaining our own unique distinctiveness. We are not equivalent. You cannot just exchange us, but we are equal. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And this careful nuance of Jesus here about his relationship with the Father is enough to give his assassins pause. And instead of hurling their stones, like, maybe we... Maybe we shouldn't throw these right. Let's just arrest him and figure all this out later, which is what we find in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That's, I would have loved to have been on the scene and see how he did that, but they're probably starting to debate. He's like, I don't, I don't know how it happened. but um, Now, before we move to the closing three verses of our text this morning, I'd like to give you two takeaways, two truths that you can take to the bank with you based on what we've learned. Number one, believers, read this out loud with me. Jesus won't let you go. And two, doubters, and oftentimes believers are doubters all at the same time. Read this out loud with me. Jesus welcomes you where you are. Thank you, Lee. Jesus won't let you go. Jesus welcomes you where you are. You don't have to have perfect faith to come to Jesus. You don't have to understand everything. You might still be confused about the Trinity. It's okay. It's okay to come to him with your inadequacies. Come to him with your doubts. It's not the quantity or the quality of your faith that matters as much as the object of your faith. You can have some really big doubts. But if you can just begin with believing a little bit about Jesus, either his works or his words, Jesus can work with that. We read elsewhere in Scripture, he can take faith the size of a mustard seed and work. And so I'd encourage you this morning, no matter where you're at with your doubts, would you keep stepping towards Jesus and praying the prayer, Lord, I believe, help, help my unbelief. All right, well, let's wrap things up. Got a few more verses. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, And they said, John, meaning John the Baptist, did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. We read here that Jesus gets out of Jerusalem, heads east across the Jordan River, so he he went down from Jerusalem, down the road to Jericho, from Jericho, probably went north a little bit, and crossed the Jordan River to the east side of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was doing his ministry at the beginning. (laughs) And while John the Baptist did no miracles, he did no works, John the Baptist did have words, didn't he? 
And some of those words were recorded for us right at the beginning of John's narrative. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus when his disciples were present? Look, look, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. That was John's testimony about Jesus. And so we see here that things are about to come full circle in this portrait of Jesus that John is painting. These closing verses in this passage are pointing forward for us. They're a marker, a textual marker, pointing forward to what comes next. It's wintertime now, isn't it? Hanukkah. What comes after winter? Spring. What's the Jewish feast that comes in the spring every year? Passover. Passover. Where countless spotless lambs were sacrificed year after year, after year, after year for the sins of the people. But this particular Passover feast is going to be different. It's at this coming Passover feast in John's gospel where the Lamb of God will enter Jerusalem and he will lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice for human sin once and for all. Sins past, sins present, sins future. It's also at this last Passover feast where Jesus will take two elements in the traditional Jewish meal and reinterpret them. He'll take the bread and he'll break it and he'll say, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And later he would take the cup and he would tell his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it and remember. They probably had no clue what he was saying at the time, but they remembered afterwards. And so now for nearly 20 centuries, believers in Jesus, just like us, gather. And what do we do? We, we reenact that last Passover meal in a way, in a simple way, taking a piece of bread, broken and eating it to remember what Jesus did for us with his body on the cross. And drinking the cup, remembering his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins as the perfect lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So I'm going to call the band back up now. And as they come, um, I'm going to, in a little bit, I'm going to pray. And after prayer, we're going to sing a song together. And I'm not going to prompt you to, to take the cup and, and the, the bread. You're going to do that on your own when you're ready, okay? If you're a believer in Jesus, you're invited to do this. If you're, if you're not a believer, feel free to pass this up. Nobody's going to judge you or look down on you for not doing this. But right where you are, either before the lyrics begin or during the lyrics or after the song, take the bread and the cup and remember and remember what Jesus has done for us. But this, this is not just to look back. It's also to look forward. Because when Jesus was doing this with his disciples, he says, I'm not going to drink the cup again until I come in my kingdom. That means it's meant to look forward as well to the day when we're going to celebrate a feast with King Jesus, when he makes all things new and we gather to celebrate. <laughs> so as you drink this, look back and remember, but also look forward. If you don't have, does anybody not have a cup 
I think there's a whole row of them up here, so just get up and, and grab one if you need one. If you need a gluten-free op option, there should be some by the offering box in back. It's just feel free to get up and, and go. But let me close this in prayer, and then um, Brett and Grace and John will, will lead us in a song. Father, thank you. For these encouraging truths for doubting hearts that believers are graciously preserved and doubters are graciously pursued and Lord I know I can relate with both of them because I believe and yet I still have areas in my heart where I struggle to believe where I doubt thank you for your graciousness to work with doubting hearts right where we're at so Father as we take this bread and we take this cup. We want to thank you for the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we also look forward to the day when Jesus will return to make all things new. May that day come soon. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.